passage, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. So if you want to make your way there, and if you need a Bible, we've got plenty that you can borrow or steal. Uh, Otherwise, turn, click, swipe, tap, or otherwise get yourself to Philippians chapter 4. It's in the New Testament, about halfway down. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning an anxious people, very, very often an anxious people, troubled by the concerns and cares of this world and things of greater and lesser significance, some things more justifiable than others, and we confess we are an anxious people. Father, we know that there's, a, there's an anxiety that you love. There's an anxiety that is a, a deep and abiding love and concern for another and their well-being. And there's an anxiety that fails to trust in you. May we be filled with the former and devoid of the latter. Father, we, uh, we got news. I got news this morning of 22 churches that were burned in India, and we pray out and cry out for our brothers and sisters. We have a holy anxiety, a holy concern for their welfare, that you would be with them, that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would give them strength beyond their own flesh and bones to endure a dark season. And we ask, God, that whatever failings and and, and lack of trust and sinful anxiety might be creeping up in their hearts, God, it would be so understandable. But we pray they would flee from it. We pray that this morning as we, we look to your scriptures that you remove anxiety from us, that we might attend to your word with hearing faithfulness and hear what you would teach us this morning. May my words be faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are in a a series on prayer. We started this last week. Um, We're going to look at a number of passages on prayer. Um, Semi-topical series, but we are looking at what scripture says. And so we're, we're looking at actual passages that talk about prayer, um, either implicitly or explicitly. They involve a human being praying to God, and we're taking from those things what we can learn about what our prayer lives ought to be. And as I said last week, I've heard from many of you, um, and I know from my own heart that prayer is often a struggle. And so we are, we're going to push into it. We're not going to solve all of our prayer problems in a few weeks. But we are going to make this a focus of who we are at at Gateway Downtown. So we're glad that you're here. If you're visiting um, or relatively new, 
And uh, we, we pray that um, <laughs> your, your prayers would be more fruitful as a result. Um, Philippians is a book that is full of um, little trite statements, pithy statements that have almost become cliche. And, and we, we memorize them um, and we take them out of context and sometimes we put them on basketball sneakers. Um, I don't know who does that. Um, but uh, it, it, it's resonated with Christians for centuries uh, because it seems to touch on some of our, our deepest and most heartfelt needs and longings. Uh, and, and it has a sort of a sensitive tone across the whole book that pulls on our heartstrings, right? or, or at least it addresses right where our heartstrings are being pulled by the world. And this is in a series on Philippians. Um, perhaps some background is in order, though. And this letter is, is being written by Paul uh, to the church in Philippi, a church that, for lack of a better term, he founded through his missionary efforts. Uh, a church that was founded in no small part uh, as a very diverse cast of characters. Uh, if you read his encounters in the city of Philippi in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, you see him uh, encountering a possessed slave girl. You see him, you see him encountering uh, a Roman prison. You see him encountering uh, a, a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. A very diverse cast of characters. Very cosmopolitan city. Paul's own persecution there seems to have led to some general hostilities toward the Philippians. We're not given a lot of specifics, but they seem, after Paul has left, to have been also persecuted in smaller or greater degrees. Uh, maybe just a general civic opposition. We don't know. And Paul, as he's writing this letter, is himself in another Roman prison in Rome. And so they have some concerns about his welfare. And when you put all of that in context, um, it's amazing how much joy and care and consideration oozes out of this letter. But of course, we're not looking at the whole of this letter this morning. We're particularly interested in prayer, and that's why we are focusing in on, on these three verses. Because prayer uh, becomes sort of the antidote for a lot of what's going on in Philippi. And in Philippians 4, through 4 uh, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, Paul is going to quickly highlight a problem he sees. He's going to see a, a prescription for the Philippians, and he's going to remind them of a promise they have. We're going to see a problem, a prescription, and a promise for unbelief or for believers undergoing life's tests. When I say problem, uh, looking in verse four and also in verse five, you, you see a couple commands, and these commands focus on a couple different attitudes that he wants the Philippians to have in the closing of his letter. There are things that to some degree or another come up earlier in the letter as well. But here he's very explicit and he's very direct. 
And, you know, there are a lot of different attitudes and there's a lot of different behaviors that we would consider to be good to have, um, especially those of us who are Christians. We would say, yes, we want Christians to be a certain way and act a certain way. Um, so he's being very selective in only choosing two. And that leads me to believe, as well as the whole context of the letter, that these are two areas that might be a particular struggle for the Philippians. And so he needs to emphasize them. He needs to put these things uh, on the front of the stove and make sure that they are heard one last time before he closes this letter. Um, and, and so he addresses these things. And the first one, he, Paul tells the Philippian Christians to rejoice. He says it twice. So he wants them, wants them to hear this. And there's no secret meaning to the word rejoice. It means to feel joy. To feel joy. It does not mean to state positive things with your mouth, even though your heart doesn't feel it. It doesn't mean to put on a phony smile while you inwardly rot away or maybe burn with indignation. It means to feel joy. When I was a younger Christian, uh, somewhere along the way, I heard this idea that there's a difference between happiness and joy. Maybe you've heard that also. That we aren't always called to be happy, but we are always called to have joy. Uh, and so we can have this, this joy thing even when we don't have this happiness thing. And that seemed good to me because, you know, I don't always feel very happy. And, and so I went along with this thinking there's, there must then be some sort of inner contentment, you know, that maybe counts as joy even when I feel anything but joy. But there was always something I think that was almost taking on faith because honestly I couldn't really make sense of it. What, what is a, a joy without happiness? And I think there's a good reason I couldn't fully make sense of it and that's because the problem with this is that it makes nonsense out of joy. Dictionary.com says that joy is the emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something. Merriam-Webster Dictionary says, joy is a state of happiness or felicity. The Free Dictionary says, intense and especially ecstatic or exultant happiness, or an instance of such a feeling. The Oxford Dictionary say, a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. I don't know how to have joy without happiness. And neither do the dictionaries, apparently. Joy is an emotion. And, and emotions are problematic, right? Because you generally cannot will yourself into an emotion. I mean, try it. Be sad. Right now. Come on. Just push it out. Sadness. Go. You probably can't do it. In the moment, emotions are involuntary. They're spontaneous responses, often to external circumstances you did not bring about. So how can that rejoicing be demanded of us, let alone always? Because Paul's emphatic, always. Certainly we can be joyful sometimes, but always? I agree with, with John Piper here, who suggests that the very fact that God 
demands things from us, from me, that we feel utterly incapable of accomplishing is actually a testament to how deeply wicked our hearts are. How far must we have fallen at one time to have been considered sinless with regard to joy? There was a time in the, in the garden, in the, basking in the presence of God, and, and we were sinless with respect to our joy. Is it really impossible to always then be happy? Well, I think if we understand the, the basis of this rejoicing, our perspective might change a little bit. Not that we're suddenly going to become perfect, not by any stretch. But Paul commands the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And so the grounding or the, or the basis of their rejoicing is the Lord. And the complaint I think that we would make about a command for joy is that we can't control an emotional response to the whims of the universe that pop out at us seemingly at random. We, we don't choose to receive a phone call that a parent or a grandparent has passed away. We, we don't choose to have a miscarriage. We don't choose for our sports team to win it all or lose it all. We don't choose to be ripped off. We don't choose to be dumped. We don't choose to be duped. We don't choose to be confused. We don't choose to get lost. And in all these things, our emotions come flying at us. But we do choose the Lord. And I don't mean this in some sort of Calvinism, Arminianism debate. I simply mean that all those who receive Christ receive Christ voluntarily. And those who reject Christ voluntarily reject Christ. Nobody does this Christianity thing against his or her will. And when we reflect on the beauty of our God and consider the goodness he has extended to us, goodness that is in spite of the depth of our own depravity, that should bring us joy. And there's two things about this peculiar joy which should motivate us even more first is the astronomically great weight of God's beauty if we see him correctly and we see him well and we never fully do in this life but we should be filled with a joy surpassing all of our experiences God's beauty is at all times greater than the ugliness that we see in this world that might be swimming all around us and, and threatening to drown us. God's beauty is always greater. I've said before, and, and I'll say again, that I don't think that the presence of joy means the absence of all other emotions. If God is grieved at sin, and he is, the Bible teaches that, then he must be grieved all the time. Yeah? If God rejoices at the sanctification of his people, and the Bible teaches he is, then he must be joyed at all times. He holds these emotions together. 
We do the same thing sometimes. Uh, at a wedding, a father may grieve the change of relationship with his daughter, but he's also rejoicing in her happiness. At a funeral, we may joyfully remember shared memories while at the same time mourning the loss. These things aren't incongruent. But the absolute magnificence of God's beauty should give us joy even in life's most difficult circumstances. Not always joy apart from pain, not always joy apart from mourning, or other emotions, but a real joy, a real happiness that is present there nonetheless. Consider that when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, he was presently imprisoned in Rome for being a Christian, for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And the Philippians knew Paul's example well. As I said before, when he traveled to Philippi to preach the gospel, they encountered a slave girl who was demon-possessed. And this demon allowed her to tell fortunes. And she made quite a bit of money for her masters doing this. And when Paul casts the demon out of her, her former masters are not thrilled by the fact that this woman has been healed. They are frustrated and upset that their means of making money off her has gone away. And they lead a public crusade against Paul and his ministry partner Silas that ends with them being flogged and thrown in jail. And while sitting in the Philippian jail, Paul and Silas prayed and sung hymns. That's not what the world would see as a normal reaction to that kind of suffering. In the middle of the night, an earthquake struck that loosed their chains. And rather than flee, as we might expect them to, they stayed. And they preached the gospel to the jailer who with his family became Christians. The Philippians had seen Paul suffer with joy. So when we think about the beauty of God, we think about it two ways. Then the first way is that God's beauty is astronomically large. Far greater in magnitude than the magnitude of any pain or suffering we could encounter in this life. Secondly, though, we can be encouraged by God's majesty and beauty because we're talking about the Lord who doesn't change, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. And if he's unchanging, that means the locus of our joy is unchanged. And the need to lose joy is obliterated. I've been talking with uh, a gentleman who, for a long and, and, and confusing set of circumstances that I won't get into, uh, is in danger of losing his career. And he is passionate about his career. It is the thing that gives him satisfaction and gives him self-worth and makes him feel like he is important in this world. And presently, it looks like his career well, it, it has come crashing down, and whether he will ever be able to resurrect it is a giant question mark. And if his joy is going to be in his career, that's a very fickle thing. 
Maybe you want to place your joy in your children, or you want to place your joy in your spouse, or you want to place your joy in your freedom, or, or your joy in, in adventuring or taking trips. But, but these are things that in any number of ways can be stolen from us in a moment. But when the locus of our joy is in God who does not change and remains the same, then there is no set of circumstances in which we find ourselves without a source of joy because he's still there. Quite simply, Christians have access to a perpetual fount of joy. The problem is simply one of perspective. It's no sin to grieve uh, or anger or any other emotion, but it is a sin, I think, to lose our joy entirely. And I'll say more about that in a minute. The second attitude that, that Paul wants to identify and focus on before closing his letter again is what the Bible translates here as reasonableness. He wants their reasonableness to be seen before all men. And that's a tricky word. It's elsewhere translated gentleness, and other translations have it that way here. But that's not quite the sense either. Uh, both reasonable and gentle kind of hit on an aspect of this word. And, and we don't really have a word in English that's like halfway between gentleness and reasonableness. Those are very different categories in English. Um, if we had such a word, it would be perfect for here. We don't. Um, this is a person, a person who has this quality, is a person who maybe doesn't insist on his or her own rights, but is willing to sacrifice a little bit of his own priorities for the sake of another person. The Romans could use it in a, an official context for a governing official who was willing to break with the letter of the law if the letter of the law would not sufficiently uphold justice. The great English preacher of London, Charles Spurgeon, wrote that the best translation would probably be forbearance. Do not get angry with anybody. Do not begin to get fiery and impetuous. Do not push your own rights too far. Stop short of what you might fairly demand. And when you feel at any time a little vehement in temper, check yourself, hold yourself in, bear and forbear. Go not as far as you may, nor even as far as some think you ought in defending your own rights. Let your gentleness, your yieldingness, be, un, be known unto all men. Be forbearing, for the Lord is at hand. You cannot tell how soon he may appear. There is no time to spare for the indulgence of anger. Be quiet. Be patient. And if there be anything very wrong, well, leave it. Our Lord Jesus will come very soon. Therefore, be not impatient. So this is an attitude that deals with people by its very nature. But Paul is emphatic that it be evident before all men. And that's a challenge, right? Because most of us are reasonable in this sense among people we enjoy or people we are close to. Being reasonable among people we dislike or people we don't enjoy or who might flog us or murder us, that's different. 
It's one thing to not insist on your rights with your boyfriend. It's another thing to not insist on your rights when your boss increases his demands for the umpteenth time. It's one thing to not insist on your rights with your mom. It's another thing to not insist on your rights with that neighbor who wants to continue to blare music in the middle of the night, every night, over and again, and you can't sleep. And, and so, clearly, the Philippians are struggling with this a little bit. And, it, you know, from a human perspective, can you blame them? Um, they're facing opposition, uh, both from secular forces and from religious sources. If you read the letter, you'll see that. And you can imagine they're getting frustrated. You can imagine they're seeing injustices and they, they want to lash out. They want to fight back. They want to demand what's theirs. And there are many, many more times, I imagine, to lay down our rights than there are to claim them. And so in these two attitudes that Paul uh, focuses on, zeroes in on as a problem, we have kind of both an internal focus and an external focus, don't we? I mean, our rejoicing is, is more of an internal disposition. It might be seen by others at times, but it's rooted in our own hearts. Then our reasonableness, though, if we understand it this way, doesn't often exist outside of interpersonal relationships. Of course, it's rooted in the character of our hearts, but it can't go anywhere without other people being present. And so this is the, the posture Paul wants for these Philippians that they apparently are struggling with to some degree, facing different social pressures, maybe some light persecution. And this is what we are called to as well. Now, Paul slips in a little brief blurb here at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. What do we do with that? There's, there's no connecting words here. Um, the presence of the semicolon in our English Bibles would make us think that it goes more with the next statement in verse 7 about anxiety. Uh, but Charles Spurgeon and, and many other thinkers think it went more closely with the idea of forbearance. And, and complicating things is the fact that the Lord is at hand, or in some translations the Lord is near, can mean two things. It can mean two things in English. And it can mean two things in Greek. It could mean he is close by in the sense of space. Like the person next to you right now is close by you. Or it could mean he is coming soon in the sense of time. And it's difficult to know what was in the front of Paul's mind when he wrote that. But it's, it's quite possible that the ambiguity was intentional. Both were true. Because the Lord Jesus is returning soon, and this life is brief and momentary, insisting on our rights and getting worked up by a momentary trial really just isn't worth it. Because the Lord is near, present in the person of the Spirit, there's no need for anxiety. He is our comfort. And so in this way, this little statement is an encouragement and a hinge between these two sections of the paragraph. And let's turn our attention to that second section. Here Paul's going to give his prescription for their anxiety, for their gentleness, and, 
or their lack of gentleness and, and all the things that are leading them to have that anxiety and that lack of reasonableness. So the Philippians might be forgiven among men for being less than rejoiceful, whether about their own circumstances or, or even for Paul, who they haven't heard from, but they know he's imprisoned. And they might be given a pass for feeling less than magnanimous about the forces in the world that brought about such circumstances. We might, again, from a human perspective, be willing to cut them some slack for being troubled in their spirits about things going on in their world. It's hard to know exactly the relationship between these commands, since Paul just kind of spits them out one after another with no ands, no therefores, no fors, no because ofs. But I can imagine that anxiety is closely related to these first two commands. Um, and and, and it is, excuse me, that anxiety is, is very connected to um, this command to pray. Due to external circumstances about which they were anxious, they were disinclined to rejoice or they were disinclined to be particularly hospitable to a cold world. And to this, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. It's actually positive. In Greek, it's a little more awkward in English, but be anxious about nothing. With the nothing emphasized for good measure. Rather than brooding about life's concerns, Paul prescribes prayer. You're wondering, when are we going to get there? In a series on prayer, we've said very little bit about it up to this point. Um, but here we are. And, and Paul prescribes no mere prayer, but maybe a thoroughgoing prayer regimen. And, and in this, Paul is going to give us the timing and the types and the temperament of prayer. It's like a little sermon within a sermon. It's great. Um, the timing. And, and, and Paul says in everything. And, and strictly speaking, that's not a time. But for all practical purposes, it is. Um, Paul says in every situation you find yourself in, pray. Well, every situation we find ourselves takes place in time. Um, so there is never a time in which prayer is not called for. Prayer is the proper response to all of life's circumstances. Are you stuck in a Philippian jail after having been beaten for helping a slave? Pray. You get out? Pray. You have a bad day at the office? Pray. Did you get a promotion? Pray. You woke up on the wrong side of the bed? Pray. The right side of the bed? Pray. The test was hard? Pray. You passed with flying colors? Pray. Someone pokes fun at you and, and, and criticizes you and insults you for your faith. Pray. The same person turns and becomes a follower of Jesus. Pray. And so there's, there's no circumstance that doesn't fall under the rubric of everything. The Philippians did not need to worry about their beloved friend Paul's imprisonment. They only needed to pray. And so it is with us. Now, to be sure, there is a difference between praying about everything and praying in everything. For one, 
we can't pray about everything. There's not enough time. And, and for another, there's things that we probably shouldn't pray for. But nonetheless, in every circumstance we find ourselves, there is cause within that to pray. And the type of prayer that is fitting for all circumstances well, we have three words for prayer here. Maybe four if you want to push it. Paul mentions prayer. He says supplication. He says requests. And all three of those words generally point to asks. Although the first can be a generic term for prayer, it very often, and more often than not, focuses on a type of prayer where we are requesting things. And so, in all circumstances, Paul suggests it is good to ask God for things. And that's pretty amazing in and of itself because God allows us to bring a request to him in all circumstances. He does not get worn out by our requests. He does not get sick of dealing with his children. He desires good things and he will listen to our pleas. I don't know about you, but I often don't ask for what I need because I'm self-conscious that I'm disturbing someone. Or, or maybe I think I've asked them for too many things already, and so I don't want to put them out or, or poke them just one more time. And, and, and all of us probably have a point where we break and we simply feel uncomfortable asking for anything more. Some, some of you... That takes you a long time to get to that point. And, you know, good for you. You just keep asking. Um, some of us, it's like we can't even ask for one little thing that we need. Um, but, but all of us kind of have that breaking point. And with God on the receiving end, there's no breaking point. He wants us to come to him with our requests. And again, this doesn't mean that we should ask for just anything. Last week, uh, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, and we looked at a whole list of requests that Jesus suggests are a model for the types of things we ought to ask for. And this doesn't mean that petitions or requests are the only type of prayer we should offer, but it's simply to say that it is remarkable that requests to God are always in order. And he gives the temperament of prayer. What spirit or, or what character should accompany our prayer? And Paul says thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is, of course, a type of prayer itself. It's a, read through the Psalms and you'll see one of the primary ways that we are taught to pray to God is by offering him thanksgiving, uh, to thanking him for the things that he has done in our lives. But we'd normally expect something a little bit different. If we slow down when we look at the scriptures, we notice things. And sometimes I, 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 I notice, something I notice that as I, I slowed down to prepare this sermon is this juxtaposition of asking for things and being thankful. It's odd, right? Because we'd normally expect to be thankful after we receive what we ask for. But here, the thankfulness accompanies the asking. 
And I find that interesting. Why should we be thankful before we receive? I think there's at least two reasons. So I'll give you two. First, we're thankful because we already have received. On account of the sacrifice of Jesus, as his followers, those of us who have placed our faith in him and repented of our sins, we've been brought from death to life. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been adopted into the family of God. We've been given eternal life. We have been given an inheritance in God's kingdom. The overwhelming weight of what we've been given, coupled with the fact that we're asking for more, should kindle a sort of thankfulness in our hearts. And second, we're thankful because we know that God is faithful and trustworthy. We, we may not get exactly what we want, often because we don't know what to ask for, but we know we serve a God who, as Paul says elsewhere, works all things together for the good of those who love him. So whatever the circumstances, we can be thankful that God is doing in and through those circumstances things that might sometimes be hidden from our eyes but which we know are good. One biblical scholar, uh, Walter Hansen, puts it pretty bluntly and says, an absence of thanksgiving to God in prayer turns off the power in prayer. Without thanksgiving, prayer becomes merely a way of complaining to God about all the bad things that are or might be happening. A little harsh, but there's some truth there, isn't there? Set aside Paul's concerns about joy and gentleness for a moment. Prayer is the habit that should undergird all of our needs and all of our lacks. Bring all of your petitions, all of your requests before God because He is kind and He is gentle and He will hear all those things. And then finally, Paul gives us a promise that stems from this habit of prayer. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God himself is not wrapped up in the anxieties or worries or cares that plague us. There is no interpersonal conflict within the persons of the Trinity, Rather, God in and of himself is peace. And that peace is promised to us through prayer. This period of history in which the events in the New Testament take place uh, is famous for the so-called Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Roman Empire had so totally controlled the lands that it had conquered that rebellion was nearly non-existent. There was no inner turmoil between warring factions. And that was no small feat when you consider the sheer number of ethnicities and nationalities and languages and places that had been subsumed under this thing called Rome. 
The peace, however, was maintained not by a spirit of brotherly love by people who were completely different. You get pieces of that just reading the New Testament. But by the strategic planning of Rome and the strategic deployment of Roman soldiers throughout the empire. Philippi itself housed such a Roman garrison. And under this background, it's almost certainly intentional that Paul chooses a military term, guard, to describe this peace. Just as the Roman soldiers, the figures of the Pax Romana, guarded Philippi to ensure that no internal strife or dissensions would disrupt such an important city in the empire, so God's peace originating in the brilliance of God rather than in the frail brain of Caesar, Paul says that peace will guard our hearts and minds. The old hymn sings, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without. But God's peace quiets the rebellion within. It's a peace that is gifted to us through prayer, through a dedicated committed habit of prayer in every circumstance. It's qualified. He will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Which is a good reminder that this is a promise for those who have followed Christ Jesus, who have been incorporated into Christ Jesus. It is not a promise for the world. Although the offer is open to the world. Those who have received the fact that Christ was nailed to a cross. To pay for our sinfulness and our wickedness and our wretchedness and our rebellion against God. So that we could be made right with God. Who rose from the dead to show that our sin could not hold him there. And those of us who, who place our faith and, and trust in him and it's an offer that goes out to the world and, and are brought into the family of God, then there is this promise of peace that we can take a hold of. And if, if that is foreign or new or strange to you, know that there is a, a Jesus who makes a way for you to have peace. What are you anxious about? Where do you find it hard to lay down your own rights and be of nobler character before the world? How are you fighting within your heart? How are you pained? Maybe your anxiety is financial or, or maybe your anxiety is personal. Maybe your anxiety is scholastic or um, it's employer-related. Maybe your anxiety is manufactured. And you know it's manufactured. It's, it's, it's not because of anything out in the world. You know that you're just prone to anxiety. And that your anxiety is at times quite irrational. 
And yet because we have a Lord who is constant and, and whose goodness is overwhelmingly good and his grace to us is overwhelmingly graceful, we have no need to be anxious. And he gives us a prescription to deal with that anxiety, to come to him in prayer in, in every moment with every need and care we have. And, and, and it's not because he is going to give you every single thing you ask for, especially if you're asking outlandishly. He's probably not a Lamborghini, you know, just throwing that out there. Maybe. I mean, maybe there's a really good reason he needs you to have a Lamborghini. I doubt it, but it's possible. Um, but he does know what you need, and he wants to hear from his children. And he wants to hear your anxieties, because he knows how to heal those things. And his peace is promised to us through prayer. And it just may be possible, and I think the scriptures would suggest to us, it's likely, that often our conflicts and doubts and fightings and fears continue to exist within a heart that has been brought into the peace of God simply because we do not go to God in prayer like we should. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are too often weak in prayer. Maybe I don't even need to preface it too often, for I don't know that I've ever met a single person who always prays as she ought or always prays as he ought. We are faced with strife in, in our hearts and we are faced with strife um, outside of us and we either turn to paralyzed fear or we turn to our own intellectually derived solutions. And we do those things before we have even done as you've asked, which is simply to bring in every one of those circumstances all of our requests before you because you hear us and you promise us a peace that guards our hearts and minds. Move in us to become a people of prayer. Forgive us for our lack of prayer. And as we celebrate the supper of our Lord today, remind us again of the great cost by which access to your very throne was given. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.